But Paul shows us a better way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, mastered by anything. The Corinthian church, as many of us know, was a pretty immature mess. There were all sorts of problems going on there. And oftentimes we might read 1 Corinthians as this letter where Paul is just coming in and dispensing the law on all the issues. Do this, don't do this. Uh, This is, uh, you should get married or, or don't get married or do get married and things like that. He's telling us about lawsuits, marriage, meat sacrifice to idols, head coverings, and he tells us what's right and wrong on those things. And I don't think that's really quite the way to read 1 Corinthians. This is something actually Daniel pointed out to me a number of years ago. But uh, it really appears that though from time to time Paul will tell us what is right or wrong on something, oftentimes he doesn't. Oftentimes he tells them to judge for themselves, tells them to take a step back and ask what they should do in a situation. Uh, Oftentimes, even if he does tell them what's right or wrong, He asked them to take a step back and ask why that is what they should do. Because in reality, many things in 1 Corinthians don't really relate to morality. Think about it. Marriage. You can get married, but what Paul asked them to consider is whether they should get married. You can speak in tongues, but Paul asked them to consider whether they should speak in tongues in that particular time and place. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols, But think about what that does to your brother. And I think the truth is clear in both 1 Corinthians and in Proverbs. Spiritual children only ask what is right or what is wrong. But those who are mature will take it a step further and they will ask, what is wise? What is helpful? And in particular, as we think about our TVs, our screens, uh, our phones, What Paul, I believe, is encouraging us to ask, or what we can, by extension, ask about these things from Paul is, are they mastering us? Are we under their control? Are we being dominated by them, by our tech? What do you think? Well, let's consider what some people in the world say, some people who are a little bit smarter than me, about their experiences, and let's let's see, it is... Are we being brought under the power of our tech? Uh, in a 2014 article by Nick Bilton, uh, after he had interviewed Steve Jobs, uh, this is what he came away with the, uh, from the conversation saying. That, by the way, the name of this article is Steve Jobs was a low-tech parent. So your kids must, by the way, uh, Steve Jobs, for those who were younger, maybe don't know, he was the previous CEO of Apple, uh, the guy who, the mastermind behind the iPhone that you might have. So your kids must love the iPad, I asked Mr. Jobs, trying to change the subject. The company's first tablet was just hitting the shelves. They haven't used it, he told me. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. I'm sure I responded with a gasp and dumbfounded silence. I'd imagine that the Jobs' household was like a nerd's paradise, that the walls were giant touch screens, the dining table was made from tiles of iPads, and that iPods were handed out to guests like chocolates on a pillow. Nope, Mr. Jobs told me, not even close. 
Since then, I've met a number of technology chief executives and venture capitalists, and venture capitalists uh, who say similar things. They strictly limit their children's time, screen time, often banning all gadgets on school nights and allocating aesthetic time limits on the weekends. I was perplexed by this parenting style. After all, most parents seem to take the opposite approach, letting their children bathe in the glow of tablets, smartphones, computers, day and night. Yet these tech CEOs seem to know something that the rest of us don't. Chris Anderson, the former editor of Wired and now chief executive of 3D Robotics, a drone maker, has instituted time limits and parental controls on every device in his home. My kids accuse me and my wife of being fascist and overly concerned about tech, and they say that none of their friends have the same rules, he said of his five children, 6 to 17. But that's because we have seen the danger of technology firsthand. I've seen it in myself. I don't want to see that happen to my kids. The dangers he's referring to include exposure to harmful content like pornography, bullying bullying from other kids, and perhaps worse of all, becoming addicted to their devices just like their parents. Something that Jesus said is quite relevant uh, from one of his parables at this point in Luke 16 and verse 8. The context is different, but he says this, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Think about that. Again, the original contract Context is different, but I believe the original principle still should ring true to us. We are the sons of light, sons and daughters of light, but sometimes sometimes we might be behind the rest of the world when it comes to wisdom. Sometimes we're just stuck in caves asking what's right, what's wrong, while the world is five steps ahead of us thinking about what is wise, what is helpful, what is good what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Don't get me wrong. These CEOs could use a dose of morality, what's right and wrong. They, they strike me as hypocritical, like drug dealers who uh, won't let their children touch the drug, but they'll happily get rich off of sending it to the rest of us. They need morality, but they are way ahead of us when it comes to wisdom. As the writer of that article said, most parents tend to take have tended to take the... Uh, the approach of letting their children bathe and the glow of screens night and day. But addiction, addiction, he used that word. Is that too strong of a language, of language for that? Well, you might be familiar already with the brain science behind it. This has become more and more popular, but the brain science actually shows this to be very true. So dopamine is this happy drug Uh, in a sense. This is an oversimplification, but it's this happy drug that is released, this neurotransmitter that fires in our brains whenever we do something that, uh, to to reward us for particular behaviors. It might be sex or exercise or completing our to-do list. And if the action is easy, though, there is a great danger for an addiction dopamine, addictive dopamine release cycle to be created. Uh, like snorting cocaine or pulling the lever of a slot machine or checking our phones, our brains will compulsively tell our body to repeat so that we get that dopamine neurotransmitter firing that makes us feel good. What happens is with the slot machine, you might pull it 15 times and get nothing, but then one time you get a little money back. You get 
you get a reward. And so your brain tells you, ah, we need to keep doing this. And it's random. You, you don't know when you're going to get the reward, but you keep pulling it. In the same way, we check our phones something around 90 times a day or more. Some of you may be a little bit less, but we check it so many times. But rarely do we get that notification that we're looking for, that, that text that, that tells us, oh, this is good. Or we check our emails so many times a day, but rarely do we actually get that email that's like, oh, there's this massive sale that you were absolutely looking for or this or that. But we'll keep checking it, keep checking it, looking for the reward. But once it comes... Then it tells our brains, yes, yes, this is why we do this. This is why we're so religious with picking up the phone, keep doing it. We don't consciously think through these things. But again, an addictive dopamine release cycle is created. And workers within app developers like Facebook have openly admitted that their apps are designed specifically to take advantage of these addictive cycles created through dopamine releases. Writing for Harvard University, uh, Trevor Haynes explained this in 2018 based on an interview with uh, a former vice president of user growth at Facebook, Chamath Palihapitiya. He says this. In fact, Chamath Palihapitiya says this. I feel tremendous guilt, admitted Chamath Palihapitiya, former vice president of user growth at Facebook. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works, he explained. In Palihapitiya's talk, he highlighted something most of us know, but few really appreciate. Smartphones and social media platforms they support are turning us into bona fide addicts. While it's easy to dismiss this claim as hyperbole, platforms like Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram leverage the very same neural circuitry used by slot machines and cocaine to keep us using their products as much as possible. The dings we hear, the buzzes we feel, the likes we get are all carefully designed to hijack our brains and release dopamine and keep us as bona fide addicts to their app platforms, social media apps. Like Instagram, even in the past, I'm not sure if they continue to do it, even in the past, they would manipulate the timing of their likes to deliver a greater dopamine hit to make it more and more like that slot machine. Delay, 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 then bam, 50 likes. Whoa! Your brain's like, we got to take more pictures of half-eaten food and of my lips with that gloss on it. Man, like we got to do that more. This is good. But none of us, do we need the brain science to tell us this? I think we all know from experience the reality of this. We've experienced this. You know this. We've all compulsively wasted time on our devices, picked them up without knowing why we picked them up. And as Daniel said last night, sometimes 30, sometimes 90 minutes later, wait, why did I pick this up in the first place? I don't know. We might wonder why, but it's because they were designed to do that. Our brains just told our hands to look for another dopamine release. And what stinks is we're pulled into habits that none of us enjoy. I don't think any of us gets done with 60 minutes flipping through our news feed and, and just feels really good about this. Man, what a great start to the day. I'm ready to go get the world by the, by the horns. No, no it, it doesn't feel good. We, we feel pretty terrible about ourselves afterwards. And the reason, one of the reasons why it's so tough to put this down after we get started is because there is an absence of, of what we call stopping cues. So in the past, uh, is there anybody in the past who's experienced this? Whenever you watch TV, uh, at some point, 
the TV would just go to static. I know this might be like a horrifying thought to any of you kids, but at some point, like there was a show that would happen each day, sometimes just each week, right? And after 30 minutes or however long, it was done and the TV turned to static. And that was the cue. That was the stopping cue to your brain. Well, you're a moron if you just sit here and stare at static. Turn off the TV and go do something better with your life. But then things changed and then all night TV started happening. And of course, if you were on very late and just watching those sales shows, then you really kind of felt like a loser. So you turned off. But now like, I mean, there's just an unlimited number of shows. And in fact, on Netflix or other things, as soon as you finish one show, the next one pops up a few seconds later and you don't have very long before you're sucked right back down into the rabbit hole. And don't worry if you just finished 120 episodes of this monster uh, show, don't worry, they're going to recommend new shows, so you don't have to go into what is the, the feared and the dreadful show hole. This happens with news. You know, newspapers, at some point the newspaper ended, but now if you're on a news site, you can just keep scrolling, just keep scrolling and find more and more news. Uh, this happens with shopping. You used to be able to go to the stores, and at some point you've looked through all the racks and you've decided, this is, this is no good, or maybe I have my one thing that I need. But now online shopping, you might be comparing 10 to 15 different companies, and there are so many different options. Oh, well, the leg here on these pants, it opens half an inch less than the others. And I don't know about this or that, but it doesn't have, and it just becomes endless. There's no stopping cues to tell you, hey, we're good. We've done this enough. We're, we're done here. And it's designed that way. A lot of news sites, how do they make money? Or other websites, uh, social media sites, they make money through advertising. The more time we spend on their sites, the more advertisements they get to show, the more money they make. But is there really a danger here for Christians? Does any of this really matter for us? Daniel's going to talk about the impact of our screens and social media uh, on our emotional health and our communities. And uh, I I think it's just such an important lesson. But before he does that, we're going to talk about the ability, how this impacts our ability to enjoy life and grow in the Lord and meditate on God's word. With the rest of our time, I'm just going to consider two principles. We're going to spend the majority of our time with one principle to help us think critically about the impact that screen addiction can have on our spirituality. So screen addiction matters first and foremost because lasting happiness, stability, and fruit bearing are the result of meditating on God's word. Turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Lasting happiness, stability, and fruit-bearing are the result of meditating on God's word. But what we're going to consider is, can we meditate on God's word anymore? Or have our minds been changed too much? Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, Blessed, or merry, or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor in the way of sinners does he stand, nor in the seat of mockers does he sit. But rather, in Yahweh's law is his delight, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing his fruit in his season. Not so. 
the wicked. If we want a blessed, happy, merry, content, fruitful, prosperous life that is stable through thick and thin, what do we need? Psalm 1 makes a bold claim. Stay away from the counsel of the wicked and their ways and rather instead delight and meditate on God's law day and night. Are we being put into the counsel of the wicked through our media? Are we able to meditate, quiet focus and contemplation on God's word? Are we able to do that? In the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, our, the word should be in our hearts, in our conversation, when you sit at home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you get up. We are to bind them on our hands and put them on the doorposts of our homes and on our walls. But what's on our walls? What do we tie to our hands? What do we put before our eyes as frontlets? Is it God's word? Or is it the faint glow of something else? Maybe what we've posted all over our homes and put right in front of our hands constantly and attached them is not God's word. Maybe it's something else. Meditating on God's word, it's a challenge in our world that is constantly inundated with so many screens. And I think it's challenging in the digital age, at least for two reasons. First, it's because constant inundation with screens changes the way we think. Uh, Nicholas Carr, writing for the Atlantic Magazine in 2008, put his experience like this. Over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going, so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it mostly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And what the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. You relate to that? I think the danger should be obvious. Our minds are being trained and changed to skim on the surface. We've all heard the claims that people these days just don't have the attention span that they used to. Long gone are the days of, of long, the long debates of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, like a Lincoln-Douglas debate where for hours, hours, very carefully read debates and arguments back and forth and people sit with bated breath listening for hours to deep that's gone that's very difficult for all of us and that's scary is we shouldn't just say well that's an arbitrary standard you know no that's the way of the bible the bible is not skim along the surface kind of stuff this is 
deep meditation literature. Again, Psalm 1, blessed and merry is the man who on his law meditates day and night, constantly turning it over, soaking it, hmm, muttering over it and thinking. I was born just early enough in life that I know a little bit about what it's like for my mind to not be completely hijacked by screens. And every once in a while, when I'm able to get further and further away from screens, I'll experience months and sometimes years of, of greater abilities to just being, a, of being able to read for longer periods of time. But it's so easy to slip back into those habits and our minds go back to their old ways. And I fear that our addiction to distraction may cause future generations to be very confused by Psalm 1 here. Meditate. Just what do you mean by that word, meditate? Maybe the word will lose its meaning altogether. Meditation on God's word, I think, is also challenging because, second, we can compulsively use digital distractions to keep away deep, meaningful thinking, serious thoughts, and solitude. Are you, like, are you like me where maybe you have a couple of seconds of quiet and solitude and silence and there's nothing to occupy our minds or our ears and suddenly our fingers start fidgeting. We don't know what to do next and thoughts of meaninglessness and purposelessness creep in. Whew, grab the phone. All right, that's done. Oh, okay. Oh, Jimmy is having a double cheeseburger right now. I'm obsessed with half-eaten sandwiches. I don't know. Yeah, that's... That's all I think is out there anymore. I'm not really on these sites as much anymore, so I don't really know what people post. But half-eaten sandwiches, that was the latest thing whenever I got away. But our, our minds and our bodies are just so quickly trained to grab for the phone, grab for the remote when we feel that boredom creep up in our minds. But what did people do in past generations? Sometimes you had to live with it. You just had to sit with it. Think about the uncomfortable silence and how life maybe. Maybe our lives right now don't have any meaning and we need to do something about that. Long before cell, phone, cell phones, one Christian, Peter Kreeft, put it like this. He said this, uh, We run away like conscientious little bugs, scared rabbits on our machines. Uh, let's see, I think I have the wrong, no, that's the right one. On our machines, our slaves, our masters. We think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down, we know that this would be unendurable to us. We want to complexify our lives. We don't have to. We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. I think phones now, he didn't even know about phones, right? But Phones now, they fill exactly that, that problem that Mr. Kreeft is talking about. We keep away serious reading, serious thinking, living through addiction to distraction. Silence is unendurable. And what terrifies me the most is how much this sounds like Isaiah. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to have time to soak on that, though I wish we did. But in Isaiah 28 through 30, something happens Judgment is coming for the people of Judah. And Isaiah keeps calling out for the people to listen. And he pleads with them to carefully listen to his words and take the warning. But if you've read Isaiah through 28, 28 through 30, then you know that the people don't listen. The, the, the people, Isaiah mocks them, 
for being drunk, too drunk on their wine and too drunk on their wealth to pay attention. God's word ultimately became boring and not understandable to them. So that in chapter 28, the people respond in Hebrew, which basically means blah, 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 goo, goo, gaga, line after line, precept after precept. Will you shut up, Isaiah? Will you get to the point? I don't understand. God poured out on them asleep so that people who could read looked at what Isaiah said and their response was, I can't read that. Isaiah says they become like the words of a sealed scroll. Someone who reads says, I can't do it. It's sealed. It's too difficult anymore. What's the point? Judah was so high on their distractions, on their pleasures, that they had little interest in carefully listening to Isaiah's deep meditation, literature, and talks. How many American Christians have said the exact same thing about Isaiah, Revelation, and the prophets themselves? I just don't understand that. And how many preachers have been told, you don't preach the prophets around here. We would turn away the prophets themselves, the prophets who were killed. I think, personal opinion, that there are some churches that would stone the prophets, fire the prophets for their ridiculous, difficult-to-understand sermons. Don't you understand, Isaiah? The people are busy. They've got difficulties. They've got distractions. You need to make it simple. You need to make it quick. Put it in a bite-sized format. Make it very applicable so they can put it in their pocket. Walk home. We don't want people confused by what you had to say. Heaven forbid any of us have to think about it or ask questions or talk about it over lunch and try to figure out what the preacher meant. We don't want any of that. It needs to be simple and clear. What we forget is that, when in fact, the same, uh, the, the same thing or another thing has been said is, well, listen, we don't do Isaiah or Revelation or that stuff around here because we're not academics. The, we, we, we need, we, we're just common people. And what we forget is that Isaiah and Revelation and all those things, guess who they were written for and to? The common people. And when the common people said, this is too difficult, I don't understand what you're talking about, they were condemned. As Jesus said, this is true of Isaiah's generation, and it's true with you who are not understanding my parables. Your eyes can see, but they're not really seeing. Your ears can hear, but you're not really hearing and listening. What happens to our brains through screens, indeed, is a very spiritual and serious matter. Can we even focus anymore? Or is it just too difficult to follow the turns of the argument and the careful poetry and rich imagery? It's possible that some of you who are older, maybe you haven't experienced this, and so maybe some of this all sounds like an overreaction. Um, And if that's the case for you, I'm, I'm thankful for you. Maybe your generation dealt with different difficulties and struggles, I'm sure. But I will say that the impact of constant exposure to screens at a young age for millennials and Gen Z is very different. 
This is something that Simon Sinek, if you ever watch any of his videos on technology, I think they're somewhat helpful. Uh, They're on YouTube. But Simon Sinek talks about this. One point that he makes in one of his videos is that alcoholics, most alcoholics, they became alcoholics because they were exposed to alcohol at a very young age, and there was a permanent change to how their brains worked because they were exposed at such a young age. And it became very hard for the rest of their life to get away from the bottle. And the fear is that the same thing can be true with overuse of screens for our young kids. From a young age, overuse of screens, there's this fear that maybe it is changing, remapping our neural, their neural circuitry so that it is very difficult and their brains just never change and they're never able to focus like the rest of us are. This is a serious health issue, mental health issue. Um, when we're putting screens in front of our, in front of our 10-month-olds, as I saw the other day, to try to keep them away from crying for 40 minutes because we're just too busy. I understand. I've got three daughters, and it's very difficult. At some point, we realize that the screen nanny has to go away, though. Maybe in little bits, it's fine, but the screen nanny is a problem. It's changing our kids' brains if we're not careful. We need to slow down and watch out for the excess. Without understanding the ramifications, so often this generation is, is, you could kind of encapsulate it by saying this, why read when you can watch? But the writers of God's word are calling out for us to slow down and meditate on what they have written so we can find real life. But many are too drunk on digital distractions to hear and obey. We need to be very careful about these things. One final reason why screen addiction really matters from a spiritual perspective for God's people is that gazing at God's glory in the gospel transforms us into God's image. That's one of the sub-messages of 2 Corinthians. Can you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. I want you to notice the image that, that Paul uses here. Second Corinthians 3, 3, Paul says this, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God on tablets of stone, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So we, wherever we go, we are like this letter written by Jesus with the ink of the Spirit on our hearts. But I think an important question for us to ask ourselves is this, who is taking up a pen and writing on our hearts with what ink? It's supposed to be, in theory, Jesus Christ through the apostles and prophets and teachers of God's word, taking a pen, writing with the Spirit of God on our hearts so that wherever we go, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. We, we bring God's glory and God's message and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wherever we go. That's just who we are. It's what we naturally ooze out. It's what we've become. But is that the letter 
that people see and read and hear out of us. My point is this, what naturally oozes out of us? What do people say we're passionate about, what we really know about? 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, skip to the end of the chapter, and Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're supposed to be, in theory, being made more and more like Jesus, so that when you look at our faces, our faces glow, in a sense, like Moses' face glowed whenever he came out of the tent of meeting after meeting with the Lord. That's That's what's supposed to be happening as we gaze into the glory of God through Jesus, in the gospel. Second Corinthians 4 again uses that clay jar message. We're like blank canvases and we carry around and display to people what we look at and what we meditate on. But too much of anything that is unhealthy, uh, too, too much, I'm not saying a little bit, but too much of something, Obsession with something like work or hobbies, travel or sports, phones or TVs will cause us to be remade in the image of that thing that we are worshiping, as we talked about yesterday. And I fear that when others watch and hear us, they may not see that we are carrying around a true treasure. When they hear us, what do we most naturally ooze out? The latest viral video? Shocking sports score, urgent news clip, controversial opinion, or silly status. We have this meme, this snap, this tweet in clay jars. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the world through the lens of Fox News, CNN, Instagram, and Facebook, are being transformed into their image. That's one thing that was so troubling about the pandemic and the political news cycle that happened is so often the the divides in our churches that were happening when it came to vaccinations and politics and stuff, they matched precisely the chasm and the divide that was happening on Fox News and CNN. And everyone, I say everyone, I hope not everyone, but so many were just drinking in CNN and drinking in Fox News as if that was the way to see the world, all the while forgetting that maybe there's a third option that's more reasonable, more wise, more nuanced, and just different, on a different plane all together. The damage, though, does not have to be permanent. Our minds don't have to be permanently hijacked. There is hope. Why? Because the very gospel of Isaiah that Isaiah preached said this, one day there's going to be a king and he's going to come and what's he going to do? He's going to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and make the lame be able to walk. Brothers and sisters, we can learn a new way of thinking. We can learn to be able to meditate on God's word and be transformed into the image of the glory of the Lord. We can be different. Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, is ready to transform us. And that's what the Gospels are about. I tell you what, when we read the Gospels today and we see the eyes of the blind open, we need to think about those of us who have been addicted to distraction and are having a hard time 
being able to see the world in the right way. And Jesus has come to heal us. He can change us in our minds, but we need to pray for that and we need to seek that diligently. And again, have the wisdom to be able to say, when, you know what, this device is mastering me and I need to set it away. And, and, and Daniel's going to talk more about practical suggestions tomorrow morning about what we can do. May we set down the idols in whose image we are being made so that we do not miss out on the pleasures and the wonder of being able to see and delight in God and in his image and delight in his mysteries and the wonderful plan that he has revealed from before the ages. Open my eyes, O Lord God, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. We're going to take a five to seven minute break now.